Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. This is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru. And on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews and I review 2016 and highlight some of the things that were a little bit more applicable and interesting for for the medical device industry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, and my guest familiar voice, the voice of reason at times, <laughs> is Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Uh, you've heard Mike and I talk about a number of topics throughout this year on the Global Medical Device Podcast. And today we're going we're gonna to take a bit of a twist. We're going to do a little bit of a review of the year that happened in 2016. And, and Kind of look ahead. What's going to happen, and what we think might happen in 2017. So, Mike, are you ready to to be? Uh, I guess a little bit of a look back, look ahead. That kind of absolutely, John. A- absolutely. Right. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you and your audience today. As always, I appreciate sure. that. Sure. Well, most most of the time we stay pretty U.S. or FDA centric, and certainly there's been a lot of movement in the medical device community outside the, the United States borders too. And, and maybe we'll, we'll hit on a few of those, but you know, you and I were catching up just a bit ago and we were talking about some of the more significant standard or I'm sorry, guidance documents that have been issued by the FDA in the 2016 calendar year. And I thought we might take a moment or two to talk about some of those that, that, um, you know, maybe a little bit more impactful, a little bit more interesting to those of us in this industry. So I, I know you have a short list. Do you want to rattle off a few of those standards? Or I keep saying standards, guidance documents. And uh, let's talk a, a little bit about why those are important. Sure, John. Happy to do that. So uh, as we make this recording, we're literally weeks away from the end of 2016. And one of the most common questions that I get from companies is, you know, what is going to be happening next year mm-hmm. or in the years after? And in order to answer that question, we first have to understand how we got to where we are. So that was sort of part of my motivation for taking a look back, at least over the the, the current calendar year, 2016. And basically what I did was I took a look through all of the guidances that FDA had released either in draft or final form mm-hmm. for 2016. And by the way, just as a little bit of statistics for your audiences, in 2016, FDA, uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, overall, there are a little over 4,000 guidances, 4,051 guidances mm-hmm. that FDA has put out in total. This is not just for medical devices, this right. is for drugs, this is for food, everything. Of the medical device portion of that pie, CDRH specifically has put out 861 guidances, and for this calendar year, 2016, this is through the very beginning of December, uh, CDRH has has issued 55 guidances, either in draft or final form wow. thus far. 
Wow, it's that's, possible that, that's pretty significant. Yeah, it is pretty significant. It's possible that there might be a couple that mo- that come out before mm-hmm. the end of the year, but but for the most part, fifty-five. So right. what I did was I took a look through that list and I and I identified at least uh, you know a few that I thought were the most important. Um, and we can discuss them a little bit. Sure. The fir- uh, going from in reverse chronological order. So in November, FDA finalized a guidance on medical device reporting for manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I flagged that one was because this is a constant source of questions that I get from companies in terms of if there's a problem with the device, how do we know how to incorporate that or document that within our quality system in terms of a complaint or possibly introducing a kappa more importantly how do we know if we're required to let fda know about that particular problem under what circumstances um and so on and although fda has finalized this guidance just literally a few weeks ago i think there's still a lot of ambiguity a lot of gray area John, since I know that you do a lot of work in, in, in quality, which obviously involves complaints and capitals mm-hmm. and so on, is this a guidance that you think is one of the more important for the calendar year? Well, I think it's pretty important because most companies, uh, well, hopefully have very few MDRs that they're reporting throughout the calendar year. And you know, I, I know even as a person who's done this many times, you know, uh, documented the MDR and filled out all the, the the FDA forms and submitted that off to the agency. I know it's still something that, you know, for somebody who's done it before is a challenging thing to do. Not so much so that you don't know how to report information, but the forms are a little bit tricky and there's different sections and what do I put here and what do I put there? I think it's, it's pretty, it is pretty significant and, and impactful for the industry because I know that the the MDR program is pretty much been the same. I know now there's electronic MDRs. That's pretty important. It's pretty significant. But this is one of the the areas where FDA is using to to basically monitor what's what's happening with med device um, products and, and their usage thereof, and especially if there's a risk to uh, patients who are going to be receiving this technology. So yeah, I think it's pretty important. I think it's it's the the area that usually any FDA inspection seems to start with and uh, and then goes from there. So, yeah, I think it's it's a pretty important. And, and I think also this topic of medical device reports obviously intersects with a number of other important topics, UDIs, universal device identifiers, as well as post-market surveillance. And so for the benefit of, uh, of the audience, uh, John and I are probably going to be doing another podcast soon dedicated specifically on medical device reporting and this particular guidance. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. And I think that, Mike, I think that's the trend that that I've observed just, you know, kind of holistically from the agency, not just in 2016, but maybe over the past couple of years, it's, you know, there's obviously a heavy emphasis on on device safety, of course, but, you know, these guidance documents that we've we've seen some of the things that we're going to be talking about even today are all in that spirit. It's all about giving industry guidance on how and what and and do with different topics like reporting and so on. And it's all in that spirit of safety. 
Exactly. And and this is a topic that should be near and dear to everybody's hearts mm-hmm. working in the medical device industry. And so, as I said, for those that are interested, which should be pretty much everybody, stay tuned. John and I are going to go into that particular topic in much more detail. <laughs> Moving on, the next guidance, it's actually two guidances that came out together that I thought were important issued this past August is deciding when to submit a 510k for a change to an existing medical device. And then there was a corresponding guidance deciding when to to submit a 510k for a software to an existing medical device. As some in your audience may remember, we did a podcast on this topic earlier in the year. But again, this is another one of these topics that I get constant questions from industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we make a change to an existing device, be it a a physical change or a software change, how much of a change can we make and keep that information uh, internal to do simply what we call a letter to file versus if we make too much of a change, we have to notify outside uh, somebody outside of our organization, i.e. the FDA, via a special 510K or a PMA supplement. Mm-hmm. And my short answer to that question is there is no answer to that question. We, <laughs> we have to go through that analysis that you and I talked about. Um, and this is a topic, unfortunately, that gets a lot of medical device companies uh, in trouble. It does. Again, John, would you, would you agree that, this is, uh, that, that, that these two guidances together are uh, another of the more important guidances that came out this year? First, I, I didn't see when I went, these documents first came out. I, um, I, I mean, FDA's had a guidance document on when to submit a change or when to submit a 510K for a device change. They've had a guidance document on that for quite some time. And at first, when those guidance documents, the new ones came out this year, I was like, I was a little concerned that this was suddenly going to change, uh, quote, the rules, <laughs> so to speak, uh, in a dramatic way. And I was pleasantly surprised that, no, not really. What the, these new guidance documents actually do is they're a little bit more, well, they're, they're refreshed, so to speak. They're t- a little bit more timely. I think the the previous guidance document was published in like the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken, right, Mike? Uh, I don't remember, to be honest. But it's been a while. So they needed to be refreshed. And, and I think these, these, these new guidance documents are very helpful. Uh, but you know, to your point, it's an area that uh, companies are, even with these guidance documents, are confused about you know, what to do, how to do it, when to do it, what to document, where to keep that documentation, what should I report to FDA, and so on. And, and uh, I really do think these guidances, you know, especially for those companies who have products that have been cleared, that these these two guidance documents will be very, very helpful as um, as changes are made to the devices that, that already have clearance. So, yeah, I, I think well, that's pretty important. I mean, changes are going to happen to every medical device that are launched. I agree, John. And one of the reasons why I singled this out on my list of important ones is because in many cases, my inspiration, my precedent uh, of what to do in the medical device regulatory world comes from drugs because there's a lot of parallels. But this is an exception to that rule. In the drug world, uh, product development is not uh, very evolutionary, whereas in the medical device world, it is. In other words, in the drug world, once a pharma company comes out with a drug, they absolutely do not want to change it in any way, shape, or form. But in the medical device world, as we all know, medical devices are constantly changing, constantly evolving. And so this is something that uh, 
the device industry uh, continues to struggle with to this day. Do, yeah. And 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 to be honest, this is not a criticism of the guidance or of FDA. You know, the information and the guidances are are useful, but I don't know that it really is going to solve that fundamental problem, that fundamental mm-hmm. question of when to report a change and when not to. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't. You know, we've talked about this topic before, and I'm sure, sure. we'll talk about it again. But in my opinion, it's it's another one of these uh, evergreen kind of topics that the industry struggles with a lot. It is the next uh, guidance on my list that I thought was very important, came out this past summer, and that is in the area of general wellness devices. Mm-hmm. What the heck is a general wellness device? <laughs> yeah, I, have, I was hoping I, you could I, answer that for me, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps this is a, another topic for a future discussion. I have a number of medical devices that I'm working on uh, either now or in the very recent last couple of years where we have one version of the device that's a general wellness, you know, that's a, that's a direct con- to consumer, you know, over the counter kind of a product mm-hmm. and another version of the same exact device, the physical device that is regulated by FDA as a 510K. And simply put, what it comes down to is not the technology, not the way it works, mm-hmm. but rather what we say about it. There are many examples. I'll give one. That's, let's just uh, take a, a simple heart rate monitor. Sure. So the question is, is a heart rate monitor a wellness device or a regulated medical device that would require a 510K? Well, based on the information that I just gave, it's impossible to answer that question. Yeah. You have to know what we're using it for. Exactly. If, we, if we put a heart rate monitor in a Fitbit and uh, the patient is going to use it just to monitor their heart rate during exercise to see if they're in their target zone, then clearly that's a wellness device. Yeah. On the other hand, if we take exactly the same heart rate monitor and say, well, you have a heart rate of greater than 220 beats per minute, therefore you have a tachycardia, or less than 60 beats per minute, therefore you have a bradycardia or some other kind of an arrhythmia, now it's definitely a regulated medical device. Right, right. So this whole area of wellness is a very fuzzy area. In my opinion, it doesn't make any sense to me to try to draw a line in the sand between unregulated devices like mm-hmm. wellness devices versus regulated devices. But that is what FDA is trying to do here. John, well, what, do you, what do you think of that? Well, and I can imagine that that the the timeliness of this guidance is probably largely. You mentioned Fitbit. I can imagine it's largely driven on things like that. You know, the wearable technology that that's pretty prevalent these days, and you know, even apps that are available on smartphones for weight management. And like you said, keeping track of my heart rate and doing this and doing that. And I can imagine that that it was you know, those sorts of technologies that have become very mainstream where, you know, the sometimes the line is a little bit blurry as to is this a medical device or is it something else that's not a medical device? I can imagine that that was probably the driving force behind releasing this. And, you know, I would imagine, you know, we're going to talk about some of the things that we anticipate in 2017 here in a few moments, but I would imagine that that's an area that we can see a, a lot more, uh, I, I guess, involvement or or clarity or definition probably within the next year or so because of how prevalent some of this technology is. 
Perhaps so. This is, there's a lot of work going on in, this, in the area mm. of mo- mobile medical apps, which I've been working in yeah. for a very long time. And there are, you know, tons and tons of examples. And you're right, this is going to be an area that is going to become more and more important in the future. Regrettably, it's also one of the areas where I spend a lot of my time wordsmithing, <laughs> because yeah. really what it comes down to is yeah. the high-level labeling, you know, designing your labeling for one version of a device that is not regulated and another version of exactly the same device from an engineering perspective. There's no difference whatsoever that is regulated. Yeah. So this is another topic that uh, yeah. if the audience is interested, um, we can get into. I just have two more examples of, okay. of uh, what I thought were the, some of the more important uh, guidances for 2016. The next one uh, also came out this past summer, and that is the use of real-world evidence mm-hmm. uh, to support regulatory decision-making for medical devices. Mm-hmm. There's been, historically, as your audience knows, FDA and most in this industry have considered the gold standard of clinical evidence to be the randomized clinical trial, or RCT. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I have never been a fan of randomized clinical trial data, not the least of which is the way we do clinical trials is just simply not realistic, not reflective yeah, right, of the way we exactly. practice medicine in the real world. They're just so artificial. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been a huge fan of using real-world data, or what FDA calls real-world evidence, RWE, either in addition to, or in some cases in lieu of, mm-hmm. randomized clinical trial, the gold standard. Well, historically, FDA has not been keen on that because that is often off-label use, and that's not something that FDA you know, likes to talk about. Right. But the simple reality is it happens, and we have that data, and as long as that data is collected in a, in a legitimate form, then we should be able to use it, in my opinion. Well, FDA put out this guidance this past summer to try to start talking about this and to try to tell companies how they can try to use this. But I can tell you, John, from firsthand experience, there is still a huge resistance within the agency to accept it. And I'll give you just one quick example. Sure. As I said, this guidance was come, came out in draft form just this past July. Mm-hmm. In August, actually, no, I take it back in September, just about six weeks after this draft guidance came out, I was doing a pre-sub at the FDA, something that we've talked about before. Sure. I'm down there about once a month doing pre-subs. And this was a pre-sub for a device that was already on the market. In fact, it already had two 510Ks for exactly the same device. And we were going back to the FDA a third time to do a label expansion, this time under the de novo. Uh And FDA was pushing hard for the company to do a randomized clinical trial, (laughs) i.e. the gold standard. And we said, that's ridiculous because we've already got six years worth of real data, and here all of it is. And they were very resistant. And I anticipated this, John. One of my basic philosophies is you can't anticipate every problem or question, but you can anticipate many. Uh I brought along with me a hard copy of that guidance. And when it came to that part (laughs) in our discussion, I held this guidance up and I said, here, this guidance just came out last month telling me how to do what I'm telling you I want to do. And more importantly, it makes more sense. So (laughs) bottom line, you know, politics aside, it's easy for people to say things, but, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So this is another area where I think there's going to be more and more change in the future. And that is specifically when and how we can use, never mind artificial randomized clinical trial data, 
but real-world clinical evidence uh-huh. to support a regulatory submission. Uh, yeah. Comments on that one, John? Well, I, I, I think just the theme in general, I mean, the, the few that standards that we've, we've talked a few moments about is, is um, it's important because, you know, the, like you said, real-world evidence. I mean, what better case <laughs> to show how my product is is being used and and received and the advances of technology than actual real world scenarios? So, yeah, thank you for sharing that story. I think that that's <laughs> that's that's a good one. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall to see how the rest of that story unfolded. <laughs> but anyway, but you know, well, to- hopefully we'll have a positive result. <laughs> and when we do, um, I'd be happy to disclose in a little bit more yeah. detail. But because that particular product is, or that particular submission sure. is still under review for obvious reasons, I'm not able to do that. Yeah, right now. for sure. Keep us posted. But but I think you know that's one of the the things that's important. You know, and we're not going to get into today is the the uh, FDA's philosophy per se on when guidances are issued and so on and so forth. But I think if we look at, at the guidances that were issued in 2016, the general trend that, you know, if, if I were to draw a trend, I mean, it's all about, you know, reemphasizing the, the importance of product safety and reemphasizing in some cases, like in your latest example here, efficacy of technology and, and devices, I think that's important. And I think it's about always monitoring what's happening with your product and maintaining that this, the device that you're there, that, that you have in the public use and, and for patients is reflective of what the agency has cleared and reviewed and, and, and approved or wh- whatever the case may be. And always keeping your documentation and records up to up to speed with that as well. So I think that's the general theme, right? You know, if, if we were to draw one. I think so. And that brings me to my last example. So the first four of the five, what I consider to be the most important guidances in 2016, were more of a general nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one is a little bit more technology specific, and it will sound uh, familiar to some in the audience because we talked about this one before. But this past May, FDA came out with the guidance called technical considerations for additive manufactured devices, also known as 3D printing. And the reason why I single this particular guidance out, although it is a little bit more technology specific, 3D printing is a form of personalized medicine. And as I've said, and as we've talked about before, personalized medicine is clearly the future. Um, And we are 3D printing more and more medical devices all the time. In fact, Mm -hmm. there are more than 85 medical devices here on the market That's in crazy. the U.S. I mean, it's, it's that exciting. are 3D printed. Sure. Um, and, and I've had my, my fingers in, in several of those. Sure. Uh, but the most important thing that I would say about the 3D printing guidance, as we talked about in that podcast a few months ago, is like most guidances, there's nothing new here. Um, right. And as a matter of fact, on one hand, I say, uh, you know, kudos to FDA for coming out with this guidance. But on the other hand, I say shame on you because this guidance have, it should have come out at least a <laughs> well, decade ago, if, if, if not more. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And, you know, there's other changes that, that have happened in other parts of the world that, you know, a little bit outside the domain of FDA that, honestly, we're just not going to be able to get into. In this conversation, we might kick the 2017 year off with something like that. But, you know, just a 
1345, there's a major revision to that standard that happened this year. I don't know if it'll happen before the end of the year, but uh, medical device directives and IVD directives in Europe are coming in the process of becoming regulations in Europe. So that's pretty significant in in some regards as well. And those are things that that are happening outside the, the U.S. borders. But I think while we let's take you know, maybe just a couple of minutes and let's talk a little bit about uh, what we anticipate is going to happen from a regulatory perspective <laughs> as best as we possibly can. Of course, Mike, if we can predict that, uh, neither you nor I would be uh, doing this podcast right now. I'm sure we'd have our own little island somewhere sipping on a, a nice uh, cocktail, enjoying an ocean breeze. But let's talk a, a little bit about what we think might happen from a, from a regulatory perspective in 2017. So any thoughts or ideas about that? Yeah, just, just a few. I think there are a few trends worth noting. And one is with regard to guidance. I've seen a trend in the last few years uh, for guidances across the board, not just for devices, but for drugs as well, to become more and more specific. You know, back in the day, uh, 20 years ago, guidances were very, very general. You know, consider Mm -hmm. the design control guidance from 1997. You know, I've talked about that before. That's a very, very general uh, guidance. And in my opinion, that's a big advantage. But in the last few years, you know, FDA has put out some guidances on, on very, very specific topics. One that comes to mind in the, in the area of uh, combination products, for example, is glass syringes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a pretty specific topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one trend is they're, they're becoming more and more specific. Sure. Um, but I also see some, some holes, some gaps. Mm-hmm. You know, another topic that you and I have talked about a little bit in the past and perhaps we'll talk about again is usability or human factors or yeah. ergonomics or whatever yeah. you want to call it. There's been a number of guidances that have come out in that area in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But again, in my opinion, the way we do most usability studies today, really, they're, they're pretty bad. Um, just like the way we do, you know, a lot of uh, randomized clinical trials. You know, we mm-hmm. can do a heck of a lot better. In the area of reprocessing medical devices, if you have a device that's labeled to be used more than once, mm-hmm. how do we make sure that it's cleaned and either high-level disinfected or sterilized or what have you properly? FDA put a guidance out on that last year, but there's still an awful lot of work to be done in that area. Yeah. 3D printing, I mentioned a moment ago, that's clearly the future. We need more uh, along those lines. But I see the driving force for all of this coming from industry, at least it should be, not from FDA. Mm-hmm. Politics, you know, I hate to say it, but we can't <laughs> separate regulate from regulation from politics. As we make this recording today, we're literally in the wake of our recent uh, political yeah. election here in the United States. Many of the new guidances are now on hold yeah. uh, until the uh, the new administration comes in. And mm-hmm. perhaps the best example of that is the whole area of lab-developed tests, or LDTs, yeah. something that we did a, a podcast on recently. And I could go on and on, but those are just a few sure. of what I thought was important. Uh, John, I'm curious as to what you think is important, and especially anything on the, the quality side or risk management or anything yeah. like that, that? What do you think is important there? Yeah, and, and I, um, I took a peek at the FDA every year they publish, well, they publish strategic priorities, and this is uh, actually a document that's been out for a bit, the 2016 and 2017 strategic priorities, and I'm not going to read this by any stretch, but I certainly will provide a link to this and the other items that Mike and I have talked about today. But 
you know, some of the, the high-level bullet points, establish a national evaluation system for medical devices. You know, I think that's interesting because, well, you know, like, like you and I spoke uh, prior to our podcast this morning, that, that's something that, um, well, frankly, is something we should have in place long before now. So, you know, I think we've seen a lot of movement, though, with things like UDI becoming implement implemented in more mainstream for many of our products i think that's you know uh, an initiative that's largely driven to to help support that that sort of uh, initiative so you know i, I guess it's it's good that we're going to have a, a means for doing that i think we can see some of the mdr guidances and and some of the other the wellness and the real world and all that sort of thing those are, are all examples that, that kind of support that particular initiative the other one i think is interesting is on this um I'll just touch on the last one here is promoting a culture of quality. And, you know, I chuckle because the quality system regulations, uh, well, they're not new folks. And, and uh, outside the United States, ISO 1345, also not new. So the expectation that, that companies have quality management systems in place for their company, medical device companies, this is long, long, long been, uh, expectation and frankly law for companies, but I, I guess to see that this there's kind of this renewed focus or energy around that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to say with optimism, I'm encouraged by that, and so hopefully medical device companies are paying attention because all of these things that we're seeing from the agency on guidances and strategic initiatives and, and so on are really an indicator of of how we can expect the FDA to to regulate the products that we're developing. So these are just really some, some really insights into uh, the agency to help us do a better job of making products that are safe and more effective. Well, I couldn't agree more, John. And just to wrap up at least my part of the conversation, I started out by sharing some statistics with the audience. FDA has put out over 4,000 guidances in total, almost 900 specifically on medical devices. But uh, to end our discussion, one could easily ask the question, should FDA even be in the business of putting out guidance documents? Mm -hmm. In other words, is that part of their job? You know, many would argue that it's the job of the company to figure out how to best develop uh, and test a medical device, ensure that the they have systems in place, you know, that achieve all of those quality objectives that you were referring to in terms of reliability and consistency and so on and so on. And F and we should take that information and basically sell it to the FDA. Mm -hmm. Should FDA's job be to tell companies uh, how to do what, quite frankly, the people in those companies should know how to do anyway? And I would argue that those people in the companies should know how to do those things a heck of a lot more than the FDA does. Right. You know, so it's a it's a it's a very interesting question. Any thoughts on that? Do you do you think that FDA, you know, should be in the business of putting out guidance? Well, I think you know, with that that's that uh, you, you get the gears turning as you made those comments. I mean, it, to, to think about it in that regard, you know, maybe we'll leave this as a philosophical question for the audience to to ponder as they uh, uh go into year end or beginning of year festivities. But, uh, you know, when, when we have regulatory bodies that are dictating or establishing 
the steps and which we should be uh, basically implementing regulations. I mean, telling us how to do things is, is uh, well, do you want a regulatory body telling you how to do stuff? It doesn't matter if it's uh, you're related to the quality of your, your product or to how you design or develop or what to do with if this sort of issue occurs. If, if you want a regulatory body that's going to dictate and tell you what to do, then then you're a fan of FDA writing guidance documents. <laughs> you know, I, to put it in a very to put it in a very slightly more pragmatic terms, I don't know how, what percentage overall of FDA resources are used to uh, to generate guidance documents. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is that one of the most common questions I get from companies is how long will it take for our regulatory submission to, to go through? Mm-hmm. Well, if, for example, the new administration said to the yeah. FDA, we don't want you to spend any time anymore put out, putting out guidances. Yeah. Instead, devote those resources to reviewing products in a more timely fashion. Yeah. How, you know, how much more could we get the, uh, the, the review timed out? Yeah, something to I, think about. I think that's a good rhetorical question, but something I, to think about. Absolutely. I mean, I, I can imagine that uh, authoring 55 or whatever the total was for 2016 guidance documents took a significant amount of resources. And yeah, that's a really interesting philosophical question. What if we shifted even half of those resources to reviewing submissions? I, I bet industry would be a little bit happier with the review time. So uh, on that note, Mike, we're going we're gonna to leave... That one linger with the audience for a bit and, and get people thinking about that. And I could spend uh, a great year uh, of the Global Medical Device Podcast. So, of course, thank you for for being a repeat guest. And I've enjoyed all of our conversations today and look forward to many more in 2017 and beyond. Well, thank you, John. As always, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to share the stage with you. I look forward to continue this series in the new year. I want to wish you and your family and all of the the folks in our audience, both people new today as well as uh, people that have been listening for a while, um, health and happiness and success in the new year. And if there's anything that John or I can do to help uh, in the future, please don't hesitate to contact us. Uh, all right. Thanks, Mike. So, uh, again, that's Mike Drews, D-R-U-E-S, Vascular Sciences. Look him up on LinkedIn. Reach out to him if you want to contact him directly. Let me know. I'd be happy to make that introduction. And, again, this has been John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru.